Good morning. Today's scripture is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in person and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thank you very much. Hey, what's up? You're going to EQ as I go. We had a mic failure this morning, so I'm holding a handheld like a, like, like a rock star. Um, the dream is happening. No. Um, okay. Good morning. Everybody all right? I've, uh, it's, uh, it's going to sound worse and then better and then worse and then better as we figure this out. Um, I've been at a pastor's conference all week. It's not exciting. It, you did, it didn't even sound exciting when I said it, did it? Um, so yeah, we're, we're part of a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance. And, uh, every couple of years we gather all like 15, 20,000 representatives of all the churches gather in one location to like vote and like debate and argue. And it's fun. It's a good, actually, actually a lot of fun. Um, and so that basically is like nine in the morning to like five in the afternoon with a lunch break in the middle. And like, it's like business meetings all day and and there's different topics of discussion and debate. And uh, our denomination is relatively old, 1890s or so is when it was sort of founded. Um, and it's slow changing. They think we're weird. Um, they don't know what necessarily what to do with us. But there are a few like-minded people in the CMA, like us, uh, pushing for change and progress and movement forward. And um, a, a lot of people in my generation sort of believe, no, things like that, like, um, you should just leave and do your own thing, um, and separate from denominations. 
I don't think that's very Christ-like. Um, I like to be at the table with people I disagree with. I like to be at the table with my brothers and sisters from different parts of the world and different backgrounds in, in, in the Christian faith. And uh, I, yeah, right? And I like to push them forward and I like to push them to change. And uh, it's happening. Um, and this year, for the first time, this is going to sound really backwards to you. For the first time, they're actually debating the ordination of women. And I've been pushing this, we've been pushing this for a very long time. I, the obvious message of the New Testament church is equality and egalitarianism. That's, that's what the obvious message of the early church is. That's what you see. Um, there's what Paul did, and then there's like what Paul said, and so the things don't, don't seem to line up together. And so you have to contemplate what Paul said in the context of the cities in which he's in. So we've been debating all this, and I want you to sort of pray with me that I, I, think, I think we can do this worldwide in two years in the CMA. I think we can do this in two years. I'm part of a, um, a group of, sadly, all men, um, in, a, in, a, in a small uh, little handful of, um, of sort of objectors to, the, to, to uh, the fact that they don't ordain women. By the way, ordination is not biblical. It's not in the Bible anywhere. It was invented by John. He first ordained Polycarp. Um, and so if you're going to do something unbiblical, at least do it for everyone. <laughs> um, so... We're pushing for this, um, at least. And so I'm part of a, a group of people in our, in our district of the CMA. We're going to be pushing. We're going to start in the next, like, the next three or four months. We're going to get together. And they've asked me, the, um, the heads of the CMA have asked me to be a part of this as well. And we're going to be partnering with the president of the CMA, who was here not too long ago from Colorado, to talk through these issues. So pray with us. I'm going to be writing some papers and bringing the debate to the table and uh, tell them what to do. So here we go. Um, so we've been doing that. So that's been my week. So what you're about to hear has been written in the back hallways between sessions. Don't expect great things. Okay? Um, however, I didn't have all my books. I didn't have my commentaries. I didn't have, I didn't have all the stuff. Right? All the equipment. That, you don't need all that to save the Bible, by the way. You can read. The Spirit of God is alive and real. But... Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through this passage today. I'm going to read it. And I'm just going to point some stuff out. And I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you what I see. Maybe it'll connect with some of you. Um, and we're going to start off doing the Shema, the Jesus Creed. Uh, because that's going to be the overarching theme of this whole deal. All right. So stand with me. And we're going to do the Shema. I want you to repeat after me the first line. And then we're all going to do the second half of it together. And we're going to do it with meaning and purpose. All right. Here we go. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Go. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray, shall we? Father, be with us this morning. Speak through me. Allow this to be sort of the overflow of, uh, of, um, of what we've been doing here. Um, we need you to fill us up. We need you to guide us this morning. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. We're going to start right here, Matthew twenty-five, thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay. Um, so there's something happening here that has already been mentioned. Um, this is at the end of a very long monologue where it all started with a simple question. What's it going to look like when you are revealed to the world as king? What does that look like? What can we expect? How is this going to go down? This whole thing, this whole like, last couple chapters has been just this monologue about that. Um, and this is the end of it. 
and it ends here, um, and then we enter into sort of the crucifixion part of the gospel. This is the last thing. It's, it's an incredibly important thing that happens. Um, and I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to misinterpret it to be as something that doesn't apply to us now, that it's something way off in the future. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Um, this has been mentioned already in... Um, 15, Matthew 15, 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come, to come to in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I want you to remember that part, that there will be rewards based upon some sort of action. That's important. Um, and we're going to go there in a few minutes. Uh, verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we have the same idea. Son of man, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Son of man coming, throne, kingdom, angels, glory, all the things that a king, like, so the picture of the angels is the word um, angeloi, and it's, it's, it's like a king's court. It's, it's the word for messenger, right? It's like a, the idea of a spiritual messenger uh, in, in first century Judaism. So, um, and then it says in verse 28, um, some of you who are standing here today will not see death until the son of man comes in his kingdom. That is not a metaphor. He's like literally telling them, you will see m- me revealed, you will see this, but he's not saying me, he's speaking sort of like, because they're not quite going to get it yet. You will see the Son of Man appearing in glory. You will see the Son of Man um, sort of appearing as king um, in your lifetime. The king of God, the, the, the kingdom of God will be established and the king will be present before you. It will be unveiled and you will see in your lifetime. Um, this is not the only place where this is mentioned. Matthew twenty five thirty four in today's passage. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Um, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. So he's not talking about something in the future. He's talking about right, right now in their day. So like back then, Jesus will ascend to the throne, become the king, the rightful king, ruler of all. Um, will not fully be revealed in all of glory to all of the world yet that will be sort of a progression over time uh, until God acts again to reveal this. So in their mindset, um, the world will very soon see all of this in their day. We like to take passages like this and say they don't apply to us. We like to push them way down the road. One of the, there's four tenets to the Christian Missionary Alliance, our denomination, to the, sort of their slogan. It's like, Jesus is our savior, our sanct- sanctifier, our healer, and our coming king. First three, Awesome. Last one, coming king. I have a bit of a problem with, even though it's true, in fullness, coming in fullness. But it kind of lets you off the hook from the idea that right now Jesus is actually your king. Like right now, not later. And so it allows us, it leaves some leeway for us to get all wrapped up and entangled in the kingdoms of the world. Like it, it allows that. And that's a problem. Um, because we have one king. The early Christians, this is why they always proclaimed Jesus is Lord, because Caesar is not. Jesus is now king. And we're going to talk about how this happened, how he became king a bit this morning. Um, And so, um, we have verse 31 here. I'm going to continue the rest of verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, his whole heavenly court, he takes the throne, sits on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him. So, when a king takes the throne, there is this general understanding that he's now ruling and registering. Rendering, like registering and rendering, made one word. Regendering judgment 
rendering judgments upon things. Now, we have a hard time today talking about things like judgments and uh, because basically um, it's been misused for so long. Nobody wants to be judged by anyone else. Nobody wants to actually judge anyone else. Nobody wants to declare um, anything about anyone because there's been so much pain and hurt about the declarations we've made about each other. But what the early Christians believed is that there is a righteous judge. Um, And when you talk about judgment, sometimes connected to God, oftentimes it comes across as terrifying because there's been so much talk of God judging in a way that is violent, retributive. The way we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, we oftentimes say that is God punishing and, and leveling violence against his own son, the early Christians would not have said that, by the way. We'll talk about that as we move towards the cross in the coming weeks. Um, but there's this general connection we have to God and judgment that is terrifying. But the early Christians would have argued fully, and, and the picture of Jesus is the judgment, the actual judgment of God, as understood through looking at Christ, which is how we look at God. The judgment of God is not retributive, it is not violent, it is not coercive, it's not threatening. It's restorative. It's taking the pain upon himself. It is embrace despite pain and suffering. Um, It is a whole other way of of rendering judgment in the world. And so when we talk about Jesus sitting on the throne rendering judgment, he's not rendering judgment the way that you and I tend to think of it. It is a holy and righteous and restorative judgment. He intends to set things right again. That's what he intends to do. Um, and so there's that. There's judgment. And then there's, there's the message that he will sit on the glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. Now, this all the nations thing is huge. It's important. Um, uh, he says all nations will be gathered before him. This is an important change in the mindset of Jesus' disciples. Because up until this point, um, they have missed the big message in the scriptures, which is that God is a God of all people, not one people. Not just, not just this people. If all the nations are being gathered, this was the difference in the church and the synagogue and the temple is that everyone was welcomed in, no matter who you were or where you came from. You were welcomed. Our God is your God. He is not ours exclusively. We are not sharing him with you. He is the God of all who has risen above all. Um, so it's an important change in the mindset of Jesus' disciples because it means that the Messiah is no longer just the king of the Jews, but the king of the Gentiles also. It's this movement outward from themselves. It's this awakening that God is not constrained by their box, by their borders, by their understanding that God is bigger. And, and the God of your enemies and your own God is one. Their whole point in saying the Shema, um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is, it is the beginning of the end of polytheism. It is the understanding that there is one God. That your God and, and the God over your enemies is the same. Which should cause you to think differently about your enemies. It should change everything. And so there is um, this thing that Jesus is doing when he says, The Son of Man will take the throne and the King of the Jews will become the King of everyone. Once and for all. Um, this is an ancient idea. This goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham um, lived in ancient Sumeria. And Abraham was a worshiper of, of many gods um, in his land. 
And as the story goes, God comes to Abraham, and the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there's this huge understanding that, that the world, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, but all of this hinges on the idea and the full understanding that he's not just your God. He is the God of all. He is the God of the whole world. And as long as it is just your God, it's going to be very hard to bless the world and to bless the nations because you think they are out of the reach of God. You think you must simply share your God with them instead of being more like a tour guide where you enter into their land and you point God out as Paul was doing in Athens. Where you walk in and you say, you know God is here, right? And he's ruling and you're missing it. He's present with you. He's not my God. He's our God. He's the God of the universe. He's the God of all. One. And this was supposed to be the planting of the seed that would eventually destroy polytheism and bring the world together again under one king, one ruler, one God, a God of justice and mercy. Unlike all of the other gods who were heavy-handed and who, who needed to be pleased who needed sacrifices over and over and over. And Jesus was shifting our understanding of God. I've been reading a lot of, um, of this uh, old, old uh, Catholic theologian and, and missionary. His name was Vincent Donovan. And, and uh, he wrote this book called Christianity Rediscovered. He was a missionary to the Maasai people. I quoted him a, few, a couple of weeks ago. He was a missionary to the Maasai tribes in sub-Saharan Africa. These men and women who live this ancient tribal lifestyle at the edge of the world. And they have always lived the same for thousands and thousands of years. And he came to this crisis when he's standing before them. And he has traveled the world and studied the scriptures. And he believes that the kingdom of God will, will bring peace and thriving and prosperity to all of the world. Uh, and so he, he goes to these people. And he brings this message. And he realizes at some point, he says, I, I don't actually know how to do this. How to communicate the message of Christ to a people who have no concept of any of this. How do you do this? How does this work? And so he starts with the story of Abraham. And he sort of says, Abraham was much like you. He lived in a tribe with a God. And there were other tribes with their gods. And there's one high God who calls him out and says, hey, I am your God, but I want you to know I'm also their God. And you may never have seen this before, but I am their God as well as yours. And I know you go to war with them regularly and you kill each other. But I want to awaken you to the understanding that they are your brothers and sisters. And all of you were created in my image to do the same thing here. And he starts telling the story about the one high God. Um, and, and this is crucial for understanding so much about the early Christians as well, the promise of this blessing of the world rests upon fully our ability to understand that he's not just our God. He's the God of all. God is not yours. He does not belong to you, to your people, to your tribe, to your nation. We are not, despite what you have seen and heard and read, we are not one nation under God. All nations are actually indeed under the same God. Every nation talks about God, though, as if he is their God. And he is on their side. And so today we continue to battle the polytheism of Abraham and the Maasai tribe. We continue to battle this polytheism. Um, and so Vincent Donovan is there and he's talking to these people. Um, and he's sitting and he's gathering and he explains to them 
sort of the Shema here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and one of them interrupts him. They're sitting around a campfire, and, and one of the elders of the tribe interrupts him and speaks. And he says this. He says, this story of Abraham, does it speak only to the Messiah, or does it speak also to you? Has your tribe found the high God? Have, have you known him? Have you found the high God? And at first, he wants to answer really glibly, like, I literally traveled the world to come here to bring him to you, so of course I know. Um, But then he stops, and he starts pondering the life that he has lived and the different places he's lived. He's lived in Germany. He's lived in America. He's lived in Belgium. He's lived in all these different places where he has studied the scriptures along different kinds of Christians um, at different times in in history. Um, uh, it, It was a very tumultuous time when he was alive. The entire time, there was wars everywhere. And... He says that he, he was about to give this glib answer, but then he thinks about his former American life where there was certainly in his prayers during wartime, the prayer to this almighty God to protect us during wartime and take our side. And then he remembers when he was in Germany and he would hear the speeches of, of Hitler who would call out, who would call upon the, the Gott der Almachtig, which the God Almighty, just like we call on. And he would call upon the God Almighty to be with the Nazi army as they conquer their enemies. And, and he remembers having a, a Nazi doctor who once told him, you know, we can always count on the prayers of the, the Catholic school children who pray for us in our endeavors, that God will watch over us in wartime. And then he realizes just how tribal the Christian God has actually become. And he comes to this understanding that, like, we've missed it as well. And here's what he says. He says, the God the Pope called upon to bless the troops of Mussolini about to embark on the plunder in Ethiopia, and the God invoked by by an American cardinal to bless the soldiers of Christ in Vietnam, and the God of French glory and the God of the German God of Hitler were no more the high God of Scripture than is Diana of the Ephesians. Or their own Messiah God. That each of us are far more polytheistic than we claim to be. And that if we actually grasped who God is and just how high God actually is. Our lives would be different. Our relationship with people across the seas would be different our interactions with the places in which we live would be different. Because they are not our enemies. They are our brothers and sisters. And so he speaks to the Messiah tribe and he says, no, we have not found the high God. My tribe has not known him. For us too, he is the unknown God. But we are searching for him. And I have come a long, long distance to invite you to search for him with us. Let us search for him together. Maybe together we will find him. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of the church that I've seen in, in, in a little while. Like an invitation to search for God together. The God that Jesus has revealed to us to constantly reform our understanding of who this God is and what God is calling us to. That he does not belong to you and to me. But he belongs to us. All of us, everywhere. 
And this is, for the early Christians, the reminder that God is gathering all nations to himself. That he alone is judging them. He alone will continue to judge them. And our only job is to continue to gather humanity together under Christ, under the only just and holy and true judge and true king that there is. The only express, the face of God, Jesus Christ. That is who is sitting on the throne. He does not judge like you and I do. That's why God has no enemies. And we do. And so, we move forward in the passage and it says, while he's sitting on the throne, it says, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So, um, I was sitting there studying this week in the back hallways between debates. And um, as you do, I got distracted by the interwebs. And... I realized through reading blogs and stuff, I realized that Thursday was Ascension Day. Does anyone know what it's, how many of you are used to separate, celebrate Ascension Day? We got like three people who went to high church growing up. Good for you. Glad you're here. We have a lot to learn from you. Um, Ascension Day is the, the reason nobody's hands went up is because it's like literally the most ignored Christian holiday in all of the Christian calendar. Ascension Day. Um, well, what is Ascension Day? Ascension Day is what we're celebrating when you read the end of the Gospels. We're going to get there uh, in a few weeks, by summertime, hopefully. Um, and Ascension Day is like, it's, they're standing there, and Jesus is giving them his last teaching. And he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he is, there's this ascension. And we're going to talk about what this means. What is that? Um, but here's the general idea. Ascension Day is the day God, Jesus, became king. This is what this means. Um, I love the words of, of Brian Zahn. He's a pastor and a, and a theologian. And, and in his book, um, he says this. He says, Ascension Day is not about Jesus becoming the first astronaut and blasting off to a galaxy far, far away. It's about Jesus ascending to the Oval Office of the universe. And that should wake us up. It is, it is, it is Jesus becoming the right, true, and rightful king. It is the day that the body of Christ in that form was no longer with us so that the body of Christ in this form could do the work that God has for us to do. It is the day a people was called into existence, an entirely new kind of person that has never existed, a people who don't live for the honor systems of the world, a people who have no actual human king in this world. We have a human king who has ascended to the throne of heaven. Like it is, it is, it is an affirmation. Ascension day, by the way, happy belated Ascension day. Ascension day is the day we celebrate that we have a new king. That we no longer have to do, have to, have to recognize these kings. And that this kingdom is now worldwide. And that we have brothers and sisters everywhere. And we have no military. We have a God of angel armies. And we have no flag. His banner over us is love. Like there is a whole new way of living. That the scriptures has revealed to us. And then he says something. Um, Jesus says something here that, that we need to see. He says, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there's this like reference that like, and as you know, a shepherd separates sheep and goats. You're like, I didn't, I didn't actually know that. Do they actually have like sheep and goats together? Why would they do that? And they have to separate them. Why are we separating them? A lot of questions when you're reading the Bible because from what I know, I haven't met any shepherds here um, in this room. Um, 
So, yes, uh, it was a necessary thing to separate sheep from the goats in the ancient world, in the first century. And uh, there's several reasons for this. First off, it's actually a difficult task. They're actually a little harder to tell than you would think. Um, they, they look very similar, the sheep and the goats. And um, you have to separate them when you get back to sort of your home field and, and when you're about to put them in the pen for a couple of reasons. The main reason being sheep are really stupid, um, and they're eaters, and they're followers, okay? So they keep their head down, and they eat, and they see movements in their peripheral vision, and they just kind of follow it while they're eating. They're not looking up. They're not like, who? that's not the shepherd. I shouldn't follow that guy. They're not doing that. They're just going to follow movement that is going on because their brain is like, eat, 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 eat. Movement, go this way, eat, eat. And that's all they're doing. They're not looking around. The goats, however, are... They have their own mind. Like, they're up, they're looking around, and they're going to climb a tree and eat something in the tree, right? Like, they're looking for things to eat. And they are wanderers, and they're not easy to shepherd. And so what happens is when you put goats and sheep together, the goats start to wander, and the sheep begin to follow. And they get away from each other. And the flock begins to sort of perish. It moves away. The flock breaks up. And, and, and like Yoko Ono, it breaks up the band. And, old joke, my favorite. Um, and, uh, and so you have to separate them. Um, and the question is, arises here, and Jesus answers the question. He says, so, uh, you know, we're going to separate the sheep and the goats as, as a good shepherd did. By the, by, the way, by the way, whenever you read the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of kingly um, verbiage is going to intermix with shepherding verbiage. Because of people like David, who was a shepherd, God is always speaking of of good shepherds and bad shepherds. This is all kingdom language, and Jesus is spoken of as the good shepherd. Um, and he says, so as a good shepherd, I'm going to separate the two so we can keep some order, and my sheep will follow me, and they will not wander and follow these other, these goats. Um, and so the sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. Um, but how are you going to separate them? How are you going to know what's yours? They're a little hard to tell, and the, the sun's going down, and all oh, we got to torch. How are you going to know who's who? Um, and he says this, and then it says, it says, Uh, In verse 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So he says, I will know my sheep by their actions. And I will judge whether or not they are mine by the way that they have lived. Now, this is a problem for Protestant Christians, is it not? Um, We want a hidden faith. This is what we desire. Get this thing, I'll believe it, stick it in my head, and I'm going to live amongst these earthly kingdoms, and we're going to have a dual kingdom theology, and then I can just do my thing here. This was the introduction of, 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 of Luther's dual kingdom theology. Um, that led to the intermingling of, of Christianity with all kinds of empires since his day. And the general idea is that, like, um, it's a hidden faith. We want a hidden faith is what we want. But over and over and over again, we have Jesus saying it's, it's more than this, though. It's more than just an understanding. It's more than just a knowledge. There is an alignment. He says in Matthew twelve fifty, he says, um, his family comes to him, and he says, come back with us. And he says, you're not my family. Um, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. Like, he says, there is my family. I know them because they do the will of my Father. That is how I know them. Um, over and over again, Jesus talks like this. He says, those who do the will of my Father um, in, in heaven are his people. He says, um, 
He literally says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. There is this appearance of the kingdom of God on your life that becomes plain to see in the scriptures. The book of James is all about this. And it was very frustrating to the reformers, which is why Luther ripped the book of James right out of his Bible. Because we don't want our faith to have anything to do with allegiance and aligning our lives and our existence with the things of God. We read these passages and we want to skip right over them as if there is nothing expected of us. I'm going to pray a prayer and I'll throw a stick in a fire at a summer camp. I'm good to go. And I'm going to take part in all of the intermingling of my life with these false kings. And I'm going to follow the goats. And Jesus is, is laying it out for you. He's like, no, faith, pistis, the Greek word for allegiance. It's far more like the definition that the Messiah gave of faith. Like a lion chasing its prey, who chases it down and tackles it and makes it a part of himself. That is what it means to have faith. You understand the teachings of Christ, the kingdom that is coming, and you chase after this thing with your entire existence, with everything that you have, and you align your life with it. You have allegiance to Jesus. Which means your life shows it. Which means there are times when you come into full resistance with the empires of the world around you. With the ways of living around you that everyone else is taking part of. With um, the methods of making money. With the methods of handling money. With um, the methods of responding to the needy. How we order our life, our, our free time. How we shop. The things that we buy. The way that we live. There is this alignment that Jesus is saying, oh, my, my people, they align with my way. It is obvious that they are my people. And you can tell. How? Well, because when, when I was sick, they came to me. When I was in prison, they visited me. And this is the interesting thing, because he starts speaking of himself. And the people are caught off guard who are sort of listening. It says, uh, then, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So it's not like they were doing these things so that they would get the affirmation of being God's people. It's not like they were doing these things to get some kind of reward. They were oblivious to the fact that God was even watching them. They were just a people whose lives had aligned with their king. And they were living it out. And you could see it. And if this is how we can tell who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in a lot of trouble. Because things are a mess. And we're obviously polytheistic. We obviously don't think that God loves our enemies or is on their side as well. And all of our attention is going to the wrong kingdoms. And all of our aligning of our lives is going to the things that are temporary. Which is where Jesus takes the next part. Because he, he ends this whole thing with, you know, what will it look like when you are finally revealed as king? He ends this thing by, by telling sort of a tale of two kings, if you will. Um, 
And there are, there are two kings. At the very beginning, they sort of bookend the passage. At the very beginning, it says this. It says, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all, and it, all the angels with him. So it talks about he, he's going to take his throne. There's one king, and this is what he looks like. But then there's another king. Uh, you pick it up in verse 41. The devil and his angels. It talks about, throughout, throughout Matthew, it talks about how this king is also ruling things. Um, Jesus is in the desert, Matthew 12. Um, and the... Um, this same guy, the devil, comes and says, hey, worship me, bow down and worship me, and I will give you all these kingdoms that I rule over. Um, and so he's a ruler as well. He's even got devil and his angels. He's got messengers. He's got a heavenly court. He's got a kingly court. So there are two kings, each with their court, each with their thrones, and they've each got names. One of them is called the Son of Man. That's the one Jesus describes here, the Son of Man. This is an ancient Jewish idea. It comes from the book of Daniel, and it simply means the last king of Israel who will finally become king of all and bring the peace to full shalom and and restoration and making things as they should be forevermore. Setting the world to rights again. And then, so this is is the first king. And then there's the other king in verse 41. It says the devil and his angels. The devil, the word there is, is this word diabolos. Now there are over 21 different names for the devil in the Bible. And there's all kinds of debate, and I get questions all the time. And some people are like, well, this is, you know, the devil's a metaphor. And other people are like, well, the devil's an actual real, it's a person. It's a being. Um, and, and we've all sort of got this idea, and we try to figure it out and nail on exactly what it is. Um, let's be clear. It's far more than a metaphor. But let's be clear. It's, it's far less than, like, a person that you can point out and say, there he is. Like, it's, it's, it's something murky and difficult to nail down, which is why there's 21 different names all described in different places. And every time someone thinks they have this evil king nailed down who is trying to get your attention and get you... By the way, diabolos, the word used here, is a word that means the tale bearer. Like you're telling you stories about what is going to come if you come with him and follow him. Also the accuser, um, leveling false accusations and saying that's how things are going to go there. Here's how things will go here. Come with me. And it's enticing, leading you in. And oftentimes you can see it and, and you want to nail it down and say that's that's the devil right there. I've got it. I found the devil. It's right there. And I can name it. And then you turn around. It's like, oh, it's behind me. Like here too. Like it's because what you begin to find out is that it's sometimes you're working with it. The evil in the world. There's this passage where Peter tells Jesus sort of, you don't have to do this. And Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get the Get thee away from me, Satan. And he gives him the name. The temptations are constant to go different directions and to name other things your king, your driving force in your life. And the call here is Jesus saying, I want you to see that there are only two kings, there are only two options. All these other kings are one. All these other ways of living are one. Sure, they've got a throne. They've got a court. They've got a name. Whatever it may be. But they also have an ending. One king. Both endings are actually described as eternal. Each of them. Eternal in the ancient Jewish sense is not like we talk about it today, like scientifically, like 
chronology, like 24-hour periods over and over and over and over ad nauseum forever and ever and ever, which sounds kind of boring. Um, but that's how we tend to talk about eternity. Eternity in the ancient Jewish mindset was like finality. The, heavenly, the way things are supposed to be. And so there is eternal death, a final judgment rendered. This thing is done. It will not rear its head again. It is gone. And then there is this final eternal life. This thing, these things that we take part in, that we bring into existence now, you do a loving act, a graceful act. You do justice and mercy. These things are a part of what will be forever. And in the end, we are told there are two sort of different endings here. Verse 46 talks about sort of the devil and his angels. It says, then they will go away into eternal punishment. And then there's, so that's one kingdom. Um, The kingdoms, every other kingdom that is not the kingdom of the son of man is going to fall, will not exist, will not be a part of what God is building. The structure, the, the, the point of the whole thing. There's this picture in, in the book of Revelation um, of, they call it the city of Babylon. It's ruled by the beast. Same idea. Um, and he's, got a, he's a king ruling over the city. Very powerful, very wealthy city. And there's this flow sort of of a lake of fire that like envelops and swallows this whole thing. Jewish apocalyptic, beautiful imagery, beautiful storytelling kind of thing. And as this is happening, you have all the founders of the city. You have the businessmen. You have the rich and powerful leaders of the city. And they're watching their city. Everything that they have worked for is burning to the ground and will not rise again. And they are wailing and mourning. And they're angry. There's gnashing of teeth. And they, they cannot believe what they are seeing. Their entire existence has been sold out to this thing. And now eternal judgment has been rendered. And it's final. And this thing is gone. And they are left without it. And everything they have worked for is gone. And then there's this other picture. As this is happening, there's another city coming down. And sitting on the throne is Jesus. And there are, is a river flowing out, and there are trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. This is, a, this is a different kind of kingdom which will bring goodness and mercy and healing and restoration to all. That will set everything that has been broken and lost right where it belongs. It is something we take part in now. And this is what Jesus is talking about. You have a choice. There are two kings And what we celebrated on Ascension Day is the recognition that there is one throne and Jesus sits upon it. There is one God and the God of our enemies, the gods of all those we have ever hated, that we have ever fought against, that we have ever killed, that we have sought to rid the world of, they belong to him as well. They are made in his image. They are our brothers and sisters, and we are called to bring the presence of Jesus to them, to awaken them like tour guides entering into their world like Paul did in Athens and saying, I want to raise your understanding and awareness of of who this God is. This is the only way peace can come. When we finally learn to banish this polytheism from our lives and we understand that Jesus is gathering all nations to himself, And God is calling us to bring this understanding of Jesus and to gather as many as we can to clear a spot at the table and say, welcome, sit down. Taste the bread and the wine. Taste and see that God is good. The, the thing that, that, again, Brian Zond has said that to me sums up the big message of Scripture is 
God is like Jesus. We have not always known that God is like Jesus. But now we do. And this is the message that we proclaim. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The face, when we think of what God is like, we picture Jesus. And now, in the coming weeks, we are about to see how God deals with suffering and injustice in the world on the cross. I think the big prayer that we need to have is that Jesus would continue to ascend in our lives. There are so many parts of our lives that Jesus is just not king of. There are so many things that we are working towards and struggling to attain and gather to ourselves that are actually a part of some other kingdom that will not be forever and that will be destroyed. And how much anxiety and stress are we putting on this thing? You get a bill for something you have to fix with your house and you're like, I was saving that for something incredible that I was going to buy. And you worry and you get mad and it ruins sort of the trajectory of your day and your week and your month and your family vibe. And at some point, what are you really upset about? Is it this eternal thing? Is it this thing that God is doing? I mean, when a relationship falls apart, why doesn't that wreck you the same way that like a terrible bill for your house does? Why does this not really, you're like, well, saw that coming. But over here, you're like, no, what are we going to do? This is all temporary. And the fire will consume it. This. What we are doing. The love that we are sharing. When we look at our enemies and we see the face of God. That is eternal. Why don't we ponder this as we take communion today. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements. And uh, spread around the room. Um, I'll just read verse 45 to end it. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. When you serve the lowly and the meek, you are serving the God King. When you reject the needs of those around you, you are serving the Beast King. Simple way to sum it up. So our communion servers will go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room and we'll spend some time in prayer and respond with song, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for being present with us, for guiding us. Lift the burdens of those who are bearing heavy things. Um, give us a new understanding, a new perspective on life, on things, on kingdom, on all of it. Remind us every moment that oftentimes what we're missing and what we're lacking is simply the ascension of Christ to the throne. May we continue to take part in your ascension. May we understand that you are upon the throne, the righteous and just judge. You know what belongs and what does not belong better than we do. Let us see it and proclaim it in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.